coming up on this episode of Harmless. I think it's the worst thing to deny that you are having any sort of emotion or feeling about it. Because if we suppress all of that, it doesn't mean it's not happening. We're just suppressing it. Can you imagine what would happen if every person who did ICAC or child-related crimes just stopped? The material did them in, the work just did them in. How many children would we lose to this? That's the importance of empathy and that in the moment, it's digging deep in yourself and connecting to that emotion of what it may be like to be in a dark place and feel alone. Are you going to be able to bounce back from it? Are you gonna be able to bounce back and not lose your family? Are you gonna be able to bounce back and not lose your job and your career because it takes you out at the knees? Our team at Shift, we are small, but we are mighty because we're there for everyone who's sitting in the class. That's what it's about. Not about, did I get slide 13 over to everybody? It's about that human connection. We're here for a blip of time in the big picture. I want my blip to be a good blip. I want to leave the world better in whatever way I can. Welcome to Harmless the Podcast. My name is Eric Oldenburg, your host, and I have a very special guest with me today. This person is one of my favorite people walking planet Earth, and I think you know you have people in your life that make you happy because you just know they're out there. Beth Medina is one of those people, and she has a heart that's even bigger than my mouth. But seriously, all she wants to do is to make sure that when people leave this job, they're not broken. And I will tell you, in producing this podcast, I have already spoken to several people who not only don't want to talk about it publicly, but they can't even talk about it because it traumatizes them. Can you imagine? not being able to be proud of your own career, 30 years protecting children, but you can't take pride in that because just to think of it sickens you. That is what is happening to people who do this job. That's what's happening. And people like Beth Medina and the folks at her organization, the Innocent Justice Foundation, they want to stop that. They know we're human beings, and we're fallible, and we're vulnerable, and we get affected by things. We're not just a body in a uniform. Nobody in my personal circle knows that more than Beth Medina, and I am so proud to have her on this podcast. You wouldn't be listening to this right now if it wasn't for the support of Beth and the Innocent Justice Foundation. Now, before I play my interview with Beth, if you haven't listened to David's story, the three-part story that I've released already, The Truth, The Toll, and The Hope, if you have not listened to those, I compel you to please listen to those first before you listen to this episode. Because what that'll do is it'll kind of give you a framework of exactly what kind of can happen way more often than you think. So without further ado, I give you my good friend and just a beautiful human being, 
Beth Medina. Beth, I am so incredibly happy to have you as a partner in this podcast endeavor, as a friend, as a colleague, but I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today because of the organization that you represent. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here and especially talking about this topic in particular. Can you tell me about the Innocent Justice Foundation? Well, the Innocent Justice Foundation was started in 2007. Our mission was to support the work of Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force Teens across the country. When we first started, we did things like write grants to try to get ICAC teams more equipment and things that they needed to do the investigation. We didn't initially start out thinking we were going to do something about mental health and wellness. Our founder had some personal history with um, sexual exploitation and abuse. She was very passionate about supporting the work of Internet Crimes Against Children. It was really through our relationship building with, with the commanders of Internet Crimes Against Children task force teams across the country. Through the years of getting to know them, they were really the ones to identify that there were a lot of challenges around losing their best people to the chronic caustic nature of this material. They would have people who had many years under their belts in all different areas of law enforcement, all different kinds of experience. But this type of material in particular was the thing that broke them. They said, if you really want to help us, we need to figure out a way to support them because we don't know what to do and we're losing our best people to this material. So we pulled together mental health professionals, not only with the background in uh, trauma recovery and so this idea of building resilience, but also who had a background with law enforcement and who had experience working within the culture of law enforcement. We asked some of those commanders to work with us to develop a resiliency program, education and awareness about mental health and how to support that while doing this type of work. How to recover from the kinds of horrible, traumatic things they were going to be seeing. And really that's what started it all off. We didn't, as an organization, know the trajectory that we would end up going, but it's been the most profound work I have done in my life. I've had other jobs that I loved, Helping this group of people has touched me in such profound ways. It is the honor of my life to do this work. My husband was really the one who first learned about innocent justice. He had gone to the same university for his MBA as the founder of the organization, and they knew each other through the alumni group. He was at an event and he met the founder, Heather Steele. He and Heather just struck up a conversation about what the organization was about. He came home and told me about the organization. He wanted to do something to give back to the community. He met a couple commanders. He went on a ride along with the ICAC team in LA. So there were things that he was involved in and I had a new infant at the time. I finished up my master's and was completing my doctorate in um, 
psychology in the intervening years after our child's birth. And I knew I wanted to work with the organizations. So I always knew I would be doing something with mental health and wellness because that felt like a calling to me. But then as I started to hear more about what the organization was doing, I started to volunteer where I felt that I could help since I had a background in nonprofit. And so I would help with events when they would do events and other things. Jump forward many, many years. Heather came to me and she had asked if I would ever be interested in coming on board to work. And at the time I was still in school and I didn't want to try to do school and work and have a young child. And I knew it would involve traveling. And so I had turned it down. But there came a time when our son who was going to be at school for a greater part of the day. And I was all done with all of my coursework except just working on my dissertation. She asked if I would come on board and work as a consultant to help them with board things. So I worked as a consultant for a time on all the different things related to how a nonprofit runs. And in the course of doing that, Heather determined that it was time for her to step away from the role as CEO. And she asked if I would help in the search for a new CEO. We never found a good fit. And we had this federal grant that we started in 2009 to run the SHIFT program. I ended up talking to OJJDP and saying, I am working right now as an interim CEO. We have not been able to find a candidate that fits well with the organization um, or has an understanding of the vision. So what happens if you know, we can't continue on and do the grant? Our grant manager said, if you can't complete the grant, then no one gets the training. No one gets the support. And I remember that day so vividly. They're like, that it just means for the remainder of the grant period, it goes uncompleted. I went home to my husband and I said, I cannot do it. We cannot leave them without the support. They need it so badly. So the board was like, would you consider taking on the role of CEO? And I was like, oh my, what? I never envisioned in a million years. That's what my mental health degree, that's what my training would go towards. I said, we're not giving up this grant. We're not doing it. We can't leave these folks without support. So I said, yes, I'll do it. I may not do it well. It may, it may be terrible, but we're going to try. We're going to give it a go. I was determined to do whatever I could to, even if it ended up crashing and burning, I knew that then I would have at least given it a hundred percent go. I would do what I could. That was in 2014. And um, I have been in this role ever since. That is amazing. I had no idea that it was even that close of a call. So thank you so much for that, Beth. Oh my goodness. Just think if Beth back then was like, whatever, uh, someone else will pick it up. Where would we be today? Think about that, Beth. No, I wasn't going to tap out. That it, It's just not in my nature. Plus, I, I was a newer mom. My son at that point was six years old. And ju I ju at that point, I knew too much. I knew too much about the dangers out there. And not only that, but I had a partner. My husband really got it. And for both of us, it was 
a no-brainer. We knew it might not be that easy, but it, we both knew it was too important just to let it go. I would look at my son every day, and it's a reminder of exactly why I am doing this work. Because all of the people, all of the heroes out there are working tirelessly for my kid and all the other kids like him. So for me, it, there is a very big emotional connection to wanting to make the world better. We're here for a blip of time in the big picture. I want my blip to be a good blip. I want to leave the world better in whatever way I can. The Innocent Justice Foundation has a federally funded program called SHIFT. Tell me about SHIFT. Sure. So OJJDP, it's the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, which is a part of the Department of Justice. In 1998, when they developed the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, it was for 61 ICAC teams across the country. There was at least one in every state. Some states have more, but every state would have at least one. So when we first started, again, we would write grants for any of the ICAC teams that needed equipment or software because it's very expensive. They can't get ahead of them. So they're always playing catch up to the predators who have the, you know, they're satiating their, their need and desire as horrible as it is. And so they always have the newest and the best and coming up with different ways to get at what they want. The commanders were saying, it is completely out of our wheelhouse to know how to deal with this. We wanna help, we just don't know how. By the time I came on board, we had fully shifted into ship. We had fully transformed into doing this mental health and wellness piece. Sometimes they would seek us out. If they knew us, they would seek us out concurrently to us building this relationship with the commanders, the Justice Department or OJJDP was hearing back from them that yes, we are having so much attrition due to this type of material. And OJJDP and the program managers there and the administrators who said, okay, let's write the solicitation and we're gonna put out saying that we need someone to help with officer wellness. So we saw that come out and worked with the commanders to create the initial grant that we wrote for. And I think we were funded at, I want to say it was less than $100,000 initially. It subsequently increased. When I came in in 2014, we were receiving around $500,000 a year. So we would go and do full day trainings all over the country. We would take a team in. We always train with one mental health professional who has a background working with law enforcement and an ICAC professional. We team train, and that was unique at the time because people weren't doing that. But we knew that if we were really going to have an impact on changing the culture around mental health and wellness, if we were really gonna do that, we had to come in with this approach And the way I explain it is we have a clinician and then we have a law enforcement representative, like a liaison between the class and the mental health provider. Cause you have this unknown mental health provider person. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your background is, but now there's a police officer in here that has done the job, knows what's happening. And you're, and it's kind of lets them say, Hey, no, 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 no. Listen to this person. So what do 
students that are going to be attending a shift training, what can they expect? This is really about awareness of what's happening to you, awareness about what a trauma response is. Because people tend, I think, general thoughts was that, you know, no, nothing traumatic is happening to me. I'm rescuing a child and this traumatic thing happened to them. Nothing compared to what they went through. So I just saw the material or I saw the movies of what happened or I heard audio of what happened. But really the understanding is that the brain can't tell the difference. The brain, this judgment organ that we have between our ears, the idea is that it's going to do whatever it needs to do to keep us safe. It's, a, it's reading the stimulus all the time that's coming in through our senses. When it hears, sees, smells, tastes, whatever, something of danger, it responds with a trauma response. It's an autonomic response that we're not thinking through things. When those bells go off, when that amygdala takes over, you're not doing executive functioning stuff. You're not thinking through your options. It is so quick just to make sure you're safe. And so often it may not be that there is a direct threat to your body, but you might be reviewing images or video and all of those things can be flooding in. That stimulus is all flooding into you. It's about body awareness, about what's happening to you when you're having to look at this material or chronically being exposed to the situation, even having to read case notes or testifying. Because in testifying, not only are you reliving what you went through at that moment, but now you're putting words to it and you're saying it out loud to other people. All of that is a very different response that can be happening, but all of that has to do with how your body is going to respond. So words can be traumatic too. It's really about just this awareness and education about what's going on, because in this country, we are woefully uneducated about our own physiology. And then it's about giving tools and techniques. It's not therapy. We're not talking about therapy. We're not talking about screening people for um, you know, whether or not they can do their job. It's not at all fitness for duty. But those initially were the major concerns because most times when a law enforcement professional went to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, it had to do with a fitness for duty question. It wasn't about, I'm here to help you. It's about, are you good enough to be out? in the public? Can you do your job? And that's not really the way to support people. It is important to have a level of security around people who are interfacing in, in public and people who are doing the job of law enforcement. But when you're working in jobs where you're chronically exposed to traumatic material and situations, I think it's the worst thing to deny that you're having any sort of emotion or feeling about it. Because if we suppress all of that, it doesn't mean it's not happening. We're just suppressing it. And the more you stuff it down and suppress it, we're human beings. We can only take so much before we break. So I would rather have someone say, you know what? I was working on this case and it just, it was devastating to me. It made me so sad. I'd rather have language 
to put around the feeling of what it is and how it has affected. Because we can do something with that. We can lessen the burden by having that awareness, being able to talk to a trusted person and then process. That's the normative way to get through a trauma is to be able to process it. You're not gonna make it go away, but you can have an understanding around how it has affected you and that you may have learned some things about yourself in how to deal with and pr protect yourself from the negative consequences of that trauma exposure. Really, that's what we're about. It was rough going initially because, again, you're talking about a time when people were not talking about that. It was like you just kind of power through and it's your job, you do it. It's your mission, you do it. And there was this idea that somehow if you push against it, if you don't let it in, that's going to make you stronger. But we know that's not the case. Even in a trauma response, pushing against, resisting what is happening in your body keeps it there instead of moving into it and letting it go. We used to have to beg people, beg them to let us come and do the training. And year after year, it got a little bit easier. And, and then you got to show up. We have to be present in the room and make space for what's happening there. Because law enforcement, they can smell bullshit 10 miles away. So if you come in and you try to bullshit around what this topic is, they're, they're gonna see it and they're not gonna believe you. At the time, we had mental health professionals who knew what it was like to work with law enforcement. Even now, it is not very easy to find folks who have a background working with law enforcement and an understanding of the nature of the material. So after all these years and all these trainings, where is SHIFT now? How would you describe the culture in the Internet Crimes Against Children task forces when it comes to recognizing mental health? It has come a long way. We worked with ICAC to do a survey on mental health and wellness, and just around half have mental health programs that they run, support that they provide for their teams. It's not where I would, you know, I'd like to wave a wand and make sure everybody has a Cadillac version of a wellness program, but it's a damn sight farther along than where we started, where there was almost nothing. Our evaluations are always very good with the program. We are repeatedly asked to come back. Honestly, if, if they doubled our money, we could do a lot more trainings but we still have to be able to provide training support and uh, technical assistance support with ostensibly the same amount of money that we had 10 years ago. Resources are always an issue, but that's how it is for all the ICAC teams too. What reason would you apply to the fact that we're only at roughly half of the ICACs have mental health programs in place instead of 80 or 90% or 100%? Some of it is just the sheer makeup of the, how they differ. All the ICAC teams are not run out of the same types of agencies. So whereas in Arizona, it's out of Phoenix PD. Where in New Mexico, it's out of the Attorney General's office. 
in Ohio. It's out of the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office. And then you're still having to sell it up the chain of command. While things have changed, the need always precedes the solution. And sometimes it feels like it's moving at a glacial pace. It's so apparent to us you and I, because we do these trainings and we go out and we see the need and we hear the need. We hear how people desire to have that support. As to why we're not seeing more implementing of programs, I think some of it is the sheer volume of the cases that they're working. You know, we're asking commanders to now implement a support system, right? They, their plates are so full the thought of now I have to try to figure out what we're going to implement for people or fight that battle, get, take that up the chain of command when, I, when you have so many other things happening. It's a, it's a big ask. But I think all the commanders, their concern is their people, 100%. I think many of them see the value. It's just the, we don't know where we're going to get the resources for it. We don't know where we're going to find the time to implement it. Don't you think it's important enough to find the time to implement it? That's my response to any ICAC commanders. We can't afford to send people to one day training that's free. Can't afford to do that. Police officers are so bad about awareness because we always have to have our guard up. Our shields are always up when we're working. But there's no magic thing. There's no class. No. There's no, there is awareness, introspection and action. And that's it. Every unit's got a couple of guys and you know they're shoving it down. So get them to the class just so they can see, just so they can be aware. That's the whole point of shift is to be aware of the trauma that you're actually suffering. Nobody told us that, A, you're going to be looking at so much of this. We weren't ready for this. Like when you when you sign up to be a cop, Beth, like you're pretty sure you're going to see some fights and blood and homicides and all this other stuff. I never thought in a million years, all the years I wanted to be a police officer, I never thought for a second, didn't even consider it. I'm gonna say this, it, controversial or not, there's no excuse to not have something in place. No excuse. And I mean something above and beyond what you already have in place for every other rank and file detective officer, investigator in your unit. You need to have something, there is no excuse. Just having shift come out, that's a start. Not refusing free one-day training is a start. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I had conversations before with commanders who are supporters of shift. They want us to come out at least yearly, if not a couple times a year. They make sure affiliates are there. They're supportive. But when they say shift is our wellness program, I say to them, that's not good enough. We love oh being there of support, but we don't have the kind of funding where we can be there to support your team the way they deserve the support. Coming out once a year, that's not good enough. We will do it, we will happily do it, and we will give you 100% of what we've got. But your people deserve more. Of of all the years you've been doing this shift work, what are you the most proud of? I'm very proud of the people I get to work with daily. Our team at Shift, we are small, but we are mighty. I learned so much from everybody that has been involved with us over the time that I have been 
in a leadership role. I have learned so much, probably way more than I have given. I have received so much. Sometimes it's a painful lesson. Sometimes it's a stressful lesson, but I'm learning all the time. I learned so much from the trainers, every single one of them, um, people in the class. I have really loved, especially initially when I first started, I would prep with the trainers and I'd go through and say, okay, this is what we want people to get out of these slides. I have witnessed the light bulb going off. You can see it in people's faces when that light bulb goes off and it's wow. And to me, that is like, that's everything. You're getting through to somebody who yeah. doesn't even realize they need to be gotten through to, right? Yeah. And then sometimes the things I see in the evaluations, people have said, well, we have lost people in our unit, sometimes to suicide, sometimes to DUI. And then they say, I wish they had this. So that's always profoundly affecting to me. And then on our drive, when we moved, the organization's main office is still in California. My small little family moved across country. We went to Yellowstone and I happened to be wearing one of my Innocent Justice t-shirts. We stopped at an outlook to see some falls. I was standing on top of this mountain looking at the falls across the way and a gentleman walks up to me and he says that's a great organization um i used to be a law enforcement officer and i went to some of their trainings and it really changed my it really see i get very emotional you don't think it's getting to people yeah broadly as you would like it to and then something like that happens he was there with his family and he said it meant so much to me. It, it was such a great training and it made a real difference for me. I got to see his kids and I got to see his wife. And here we are, two strangers to one another on top of a mountain. And, and you decided to wear that t-shirt that day. Yeah. Yep. And to me, it was like every plane delay or every little thing that went wrong in a class somewhere sometime, every crunch time writing competitive grants to try to secure funding. All of it becomes worth it when you know that you touch the lives of people and in a good way. That especially when we're talking about coming up on some of the most evil things that people can do to one another. So you do become that light. You can become that light for someone who's seen the most horrible, horrific things. That's exactly what shift is to me. I took the shift training back in 2012. I was that guy, Beth. I was that guy that's, ah, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. This yeah. patch of hair that's missing on my face, that's nothing. It's fine. Right. Whatever. Arguing with the family, totally normal. Yeah. But after the training, it gave me that awareness. What I love about when I train with shift, at the end of class, we always get greeted with a couple of thank yous. Thank you so much. A couple of handshakes. The whole class doesn't do it, but I know that this is the small group of people that walk up to someone and say, thank you so much, but everybody else is thinking it just because they didn't come up and say, thank you. They're thanking you. They know, and you can see when you connect with them too. Like you said, you can see it and watching a room go from a bunch of uninterested. What is this stupid thing to wow, by the end of the day, and they're thanking you and they've got a whole new outlook and during class. You have exercises where we talk about, you know, how we're going to apply it, you know, in our personal lives. It's absolutely wonderful training. Knowing there was an organization dedicated to the ICAC effort 
behind us that was strictly for our mental health. That's important to know that, yes, they funded something that is there to support us. Yeah. And I'm grateful because we're a tiny nonprofit or small. I work with three other full-time employees in the nonprofit and, of course, our training consultants. It is so mission-driven. We just want to be there to help support the people who do the work because we know how important it is. Can you imagine what would happen? Every person who did ICAC or child-related crimes just stopped. That the material did them in, the work just did them in. How many children would we lose to this? And don't get me wrong, I am like everybody else in the world. There are days when I'm like, oh my God, can I just play hooky? Well, I have days like that too, where you're going, do I want to get on another airplane if I have to deal with one more <laughs> delay? Also, I'm a human being who has those ups and, emotional ups and downs just like everybody else. And sometimes I wonder if what I'm doing is making a dent at all in suffering that's out there. Oh, um, Beth, it is absolutely making a dent. Absolutely. There's no question whatsoever. Now, are you? Are there going to be public accolades? Hey, cops are now into emotions and mental health. No, but you, no, there's not going to be, hey, guys, guess what? I'm learning how to introspect. No, that doesn't <laughs> happen, but it's happening. Right. That's evidenced by the fact that people do respond and walk up to you and say, thank you so much for that training. Thank you. Oh my gosh, because, it's amazing. There is nothing that beats that moment when you know that there's one person who has benefited from the work that you do, and it is worth so much to hear it. If you had just a couple of minutes to talk to somebody who was one of those people that needed the help, didn't want to acknowledge that anything was going on, but they were dying inside. What would you tell them? Well, I think what I would say to them, you are not alone. And even if you think it wouldn't help to unburden a little of that, I would stop a class. If there's something that's happening that is demanding our attention, it, because we're there for everyone who's sitting in the class. That's what it's about. Not about, did I get slide 13 over to everybody? It's about that human connection. We can't change or fix what has happened to someone in their experience, but we can certainly be there to know that they're not alone, to witness it with them and to say, I'm here with you. That's the importance of empathy. And that in the moment, it's digging deep in yourself and connecting to that emotion of what it maybe like to be in a dark place and feel alone and connecting to that allows us to be present with someone else who's experiencing something just that space between the two of you where you connect is so healing it's magic that's why i got into therapy because for me i don't think i'm fixing anybody i'm containing space for them to unfold for themselves. I'm just holding that space so that there's a safe place for them to explore whatever they need to explore. They're not broken, they're unfolding. That's all I'm doing is making it safe for them to do that. That's how I look at the trainings. And so I want to just be in that moment with someone, 
But I don't think that's necessarily the thing for someone who is carrying a load like that, where it feels like the total of who they are as a person has been broken by the things they've seen. The connection's going to fix that. It's not going to be a tool I give them. It, it's going to be me seeing that and knowing that there's a part of me that's been wounded too and connecting there. I think that's the place. What struggles do you see for the next, say, five years with the SHIFT program? So we spent many years just knocking at the door saying, are you guys aware of, of what's happening in your brain and your body? Are you aware this is traumatic and that you have to do something about it and you have to do something with it in order for it not to level you eventually? We've been talking this talk for many years. We see this commonly in our evaluations. This type of training should be offered to every single law enforcement personnel across the country. Everyone should get a training like this. And while I agree with that, I think sometimes if you're just selling it as a checkbox, that you're gonna do a disservice. So I think that it needs to be real support in the sense that it's not just this one day training. If you're gonna support your people, you gotta have a plan for what it's gonna look like. And it's not gonna be six hours. But you and I talk about it all the time, and even in our classes, that this type of training is the Kevlar for people's spirits. And if you don't give it the same credence as you would any other professional training skills you learn throughout the course of your professional life, it, it will fall by the wayside and it will not do what it has the potential to do. Now the checkbox of it, th it concerns me and the nature of everybody wanting everything virtually. Already, it's very hard for people to be vulnerable. It's already hard enough to show up in a class, especially when you've had a culture that doesn't want you to talk about how you might be affected by the work that you're doing. So to have them show up to a class is one thing, but to have them just do it virtually where they're not actually connecting with other people, I don't think is the way. You still have to have that connection where there is a, a recognition of the humanity of the people sitting next to you and your own humanity. And I think that's very hard to do in a virtual world. Yes, you can feel when we're teaching a class how the dynamic of things change when you talk about yeah. certain topics and certain things. You can feel it and you can't, I'm sorry, you just can't feel that over a video call. You just yep. can't. I think it's completely different. What do we need to do to get the other 50% of the ICACs? What needs to be done to get these guys and gals on board? Uh, we're working on that. We've developed some new training called uh, the Wellness Leaders Program, an advanced sort of training. So you've taken the shift one day training course and you see the value and you've learned how trauma affects you and you want to implement, now what? But now what is another at least full day training and it may turn into more and I could see it being a two or three day training, but people have to be willing to commit to it. What does that mean to implement? How would I even begin? What are the things I need to be thinking about? How have other ICAC teams implemented? We have the mental health and the law enforcement professional 
people who have implemented wellness into their teams, sharing their experience of how they've done that. Right now, it seems to be a hard sell to get people in full day classes. Post COVID, everybody wants it very quickly. Everybody wants a TikTok video of do these three things and you'll never feel challenged again. And that's bullshit. It's not like you're going to take this class today and you're gonna be given the formula to never have this material come back on you at all. That's not what this is at all. The challenges are always going to be there. It's how are you gonna bounce back from the challenges? This is a marathon, not a sprint. You are not training for the run. You are training for the recovery. That's how I look at mental health and wellness training. Can you push through? Your body will do it. Can you push yourself through? Yeah but you are training for the recovery for when that challenge inevitably comes. Are you going to be able to bounce back from it? Are you gonna be able to bounce back and not lose your family? Are you gonna be able to bounce back and not lose your job and your career because it takes you out at the knees? If you are part of an ICAC unit that does not have some form of mental health apparatus in place, above and beyond your normal employee assistant unit, please get with your ICAC commander and see if you can at least get shift training out here. I'm just looking on their website on shiftwellness.org and they've trained over 47,000 people and conducted over 440 trainings since inception, was taught about awareness. We need everyone to be taught about awareness. Absolutely amazing. And did you know the Innocent Justice Foundation has another program called HEART, Helping Advocates Rebound from Trauma? In 2020, they received a generous grant from the Motorola Solutions Foundation, and they were able to expand kind of like the SHIFT program to other people who are uh, forced to deal with stressors from traumatic events and things like that, like law enforcement, fire, rescue personnel, social services, and victim services. Everybody involved in this. For more information about the heart program, go to innocentjustice.org slash heart, H-A-R-T. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to listen to episodes that are released every other Tuesday. And as always, if you know someone that needs to hear this podcast, please send it to them. If you need to send it anonymously, send me an email to harmlessthepodcast at gmail.com and I will make sure they get it. And if you were that person that this podcast is for, I'm very grateful that you're listening right now. And I hope you can find peace. I know you can. If you would like to have a conversation with me on this podcast that you think could help somebody, don't hesitate to shoot me an email at harmlessthepodcast at gmail.com.